We would like to first acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering grounds for many diverse Indigenous peoples, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. We would also like to take a moment today in honor of Mentoring Month, which runs all of January. Um, and we're going to take this moment to draw attention to the Bent Arrow Traditional Healing Society's Coyote Pride Program. It's a free in-school program for youth wanting to learn about Indigenous culture and teachings. If you'd like to mentor, you can visit bentarrow.ca for more info. Also, the Boys and Girls Club and the Alberta Mentoring Partnership are always looking for Indigenous mentors to match with Indigenous youth. If you know someone who may be interested, you can nominate them at albertamentors.ca. Find those links in the episode description. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Bernie Eklund and I'm here as always with my co-host Dylan Cave. Today's episode is all about community, cameras, and taking the time to build relationships and listen to those you're hoping to help. Joining us today is Dr. Margot Jackson, an associate professor in the Faculty of Nursing at McEwen University. Her research, teaching, and clinical areas of interest revolve around child and youth mental health, community health, harm reduction, and the impacts of social determinants of health. Uh, welcome, Margot, and thank you so much for uh, joining us today. So happy to be here. Us too. Yeah. Um, so first off, can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and what attracted you to a career in healthcare? Ooh, that's a, it's almost a tough one. I was one of those people that really didn't know what to do after I finished high school. And I took a whole bunch of different courses and I figured at some point I needed to do something. And I went into nursing, which may not be a great sales pitch for the faculty for nursing. But um, and when I was in um, doing my degree in nursing, I came across community health and, and I was sold. I was not a hospital person as a nurse. I've never worked in a hospital before. My students are always shocked to hear that, but it was never my thing. So I worked a lot in schools, which I loved. And the first time something really felt passionate for me was when I was involved with a teenage moms group. And that sort of led me along to a different job that I took where I worked as a nurse in the youth, now is the Youth Empowerment and Support Services on um, the main one is on, on White Avenue in Mill Creek. And as well in women's shelters. So I would go around and do that. And that really sparked my interest in primarily youth mental health, but hearing kids' stories and what was going on for them. And I could just spend sort of hours listening to what was happening for them and their stories and their families. And um, that really got me me going in the sort of the interest in uh, the area that I'm in right now. Yeah, and yeah. you... I just want to talk a little bit about um, a little bit more about your community work with groups like yeah. Yes, because you've also worked with iHuman and the Boyle Macaulay Health Center. So can you tell us a little bit about that work and what draws you towards it? Like what sparked the passion? Um, like truly it is being on the ground in person with the with the kids, with the youth and hearing their stories. So when we think about mental health, everybody thinks psychiatry, um, it's getting a little bit better now, it seems, especially with COVID. We talk a little bit more about mental health. But when I started, and even still, I think there is a big stigma of it. But the big piece is hearing people's truly, what are their experiences? So it all comes down to experience. And then the person becomes a real human being, not statistics or numbers on a page. You get to really see where they're coming from. And I think that was always it. Just really basic, relational kind of stuff right yeah it may sound i don't know if it's boring and it's different but it's fun yeah yeah well that's not boring at all no it's fun <laughs> it's, it's fun. really fun um we'd, we'd like to talk to you a little bit more about um the narrative inquiry which is a method you use um is this the same as something like uh in other research that we've experienced like photo voice um no photo voice is a different type of method but it's still a qualitative method so i've really been drawn to qualitative methodologies really look at experience um and that's where i've been drawn narrative inquiry is a method it's a it's a methodology but also a way of being almost as a researcher and 
um, almost as a clinician too sometimes. So you're really looking at as experience as the building block of that person. You're looking at them uh, at different where they are in place. So they're the time, place, all of those different aspects and just the relational component. And you're doing research alongside. So what happens is you spent a lot of time with people. So like, for example, research that I've done in the community at some of the youth agencies, you're there for months. And sometimes you're, you don't feel like you're doing research because you're hanging out and you may be doing art or you may be doing music. Like at iHuman, they do music and, and rap and things like that. So you may be doing those types of pieces. And then from there, you build the relationship and the research participant becomes the collaborator on the research. So you're doing it together. So it's a different type of, um, different type of approach completely. So Yeah. Sorry. I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. So how, like, can you walk us through kind of say how you would use narrative inquiry, um, and maybe I know you did some research involving the lived experience of high risk or unhu- unhoused unhoused youth. Can you kind of walk us through how you used narrative inquiry there? I'm just trying okay. to understand it a little bit more. So it, it, what you would do. So, for example, you would be in the agency with the youth. Again, like I said, spending time doing whatever, hanging out, going for coffee, talking. Maybe you'd be like in the summer, we'd go for circus, all these different things. And what you would do then is after that relationship is sort of built, you'd be able to sit down, have a conversation. Those conversations are recorded. Okay. And, yeah. And then you transcribe those conversations. But also I did something which was a visual narrative inquiry. So that was using photographs as well. So we had a wonderful donation of cameras and I had a little bit of funding from Homeward Trust and we gave all the youth cameras. They were digital cameras. And so they were allowed to take pictures of whatever they wanted. And then we would get the photographs developed. We would look through the pictures. What did this mean to them? What was it like? And through that, there was all sorts of interesting things that came through. It's like some youth would be sharing, you know, when I was homeless, I slept in this alley and they would have the pictures. Some had, you know, just amazing photographs of the the river valley or um, of friends or different articles. So everything reminds you of what your experience and what your story is. And from that, you do that with several different participants. You go back and you talk about, okay, this is what I heard in this story. We, you know, we had it all transcribed. Can you read through it? What do you think? Did we miss something? Did I get this right? All of those different pieces. And then the, it's almost the way that I've written it out is like a story. It is like a story. So you're telling their pieces, you're using their voice as well. And from there, you can actually look for, within different participants, common themes or resonances, as they're called often in narrative inquiry. So a lot of people, they don't, everybody doesn't have the same experience, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. But over time, you can see that there are some common threads or common resonances that people do have. And you can take that from the it's not called data and narrative inquiry, but from that data, and you can look at, okay, these were some common themes. And what do you do with that? So that's where you can get more into the thing of, okay, what are the interventions that maybe you're needed? What is the significance The like the who cares and so what, mm-hmm. right? Cause yeah, sometimes yeah, yeah. you do research and you're like, yeah. And so what's the freaking what's the point? point? Yeah. So I have to watch my language. Can no, you're terrible. We are all grown up. Okay, so. I have a truck driver mouth, so I gotta watch it. It's but, all good. Can we can we go back for a second? I, yeah. And can you, um, when you give give the youth these cameras, uh, is there any instruction, or you're just like, take this camera, do whatever you want we, with it? Yeah. So what we did is, um, we started a photography group, and I mean, very very informal, and it was it was like, take what you want take pictures of what you see on a daily basis, whatever. There were really no instructions and that's sort of the beauty of it. Yeah. There can't be instructions, right? Because then it becomes prescriptive. And from there, let's see what comes up. And it's just really fun to see what they came up with. But it's also not necessarily looking at the photographs in a critical way. It's as a piece to initiate conversation. So they also, some some did scrapbooking. You can bring in special items, all of those different things that you can do to really facilitate conversation and get to know somebody. These are really interesting practices that that uh, 
I think two other of our of our guests have also engaged with um, in in slightly different ways. But it's it sounds like a really great way to start to connect with with um, with your community. Yeah, and really to try and understand their lives and you know sometimes sometimes having conversations is hard um and some people don't feel like opening up to you or like however however it may be um but i think this has been proven to almost be a really great way to start a conversation yeah because why would a kid who is you know a youth who is maybe 12 years old or 15 years old or even 20 years old why would they trust me and I've worked with a lot of youth that are Indigenous. Why would they trust me, who's not Indigenous, coming in and to share what's going on in their lives? Well, no, that I wouldn't feel comfortable sharing that. But if you know that somebody's safe and trustworthy and respectful and you've shared some time with them, then those stories begin to open up. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I absolutely love that. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, so... Um, one of the earlier research projects that I could find that involved um, this narrative inquiry um, was the one we just talked about, um, high-risk or unhoused youth. I'm kind of wondering, have you followed this vein of research? Like, I'm, I'm curious how things have changed since 2013. Oh, okay. So this method was actually a woman, Jean Clandinen from the U of A, and a fellow, um, Connolly from U of T, they founded this type of research and there's a, a big group. So you do have quite a community, a research community that you can talk and discuss all of these items with. Um, the, has it changed? It's, it's evolved, but I think the core essence of it is still there. I think for me, I take pieces of it too, because I like to do a lot of participatory research as well mm -hmm. that make change. Cause sometimes I look at research and you're doing all of these things, but what is the change again? The, so what and the, who cares? So what can we do with those pieces and really involving the community? So it's doing research with the community rather than, you know, not against, but um, on the community. Yeah. Like helicopter yeah. in and yeah. take what you need. I'm also curious about um, just circumstances. Like 2013 was a while ago. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned that there is a bigger conversation around mental health. So have you been following um, different research regarding youth and, and mental health supports? Like how have things changed in the last nine yeah. years? I mean, and what's really interesting is to see there have been changes and improvements in services, yet we're still, uh, I, I want to be careful, but we're still struggling. And I think it's, there's a lack of services, but right now, what I'm really interested in, what I've seen is that getting referral to services is one thing. There are long wait lists. If you have money, you can afford to maybe get your own psychologist, but not everybody has $200 an hour to kick in to do that. Most of the individuals that I work with don't. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I, like who, do, you know, or if you have a plan that does, they maybe give you five sessions. Well, what magic can you do in, in five hours that's going to, you know, make big changes? And I think what I've seen the impacts are, and it was really unfortunate when the government uh, pulled the funding because there were plans to create a building that was primarily just for children's mental health, right by the Glenrose and the Alec. And that funds were pulled there was the plans for that building everything there were, it was going to be this whole new look on it and that was gone by the wayside so now children are referred in they wait and what happens when people wait you probably go into crisis sometimes y you time out if you're 16 17 uh there just isn't enough supports yeah and, yeah and i think that's been sort of amplified by COVID and we see families that we don't even hear about families that are newcomers, families that don't speak English, families that are in small spaces living together, um, kids that relied on in-class supports for not only um, for, for food, for any type of extracurricular, yeah. you know, um, also for any type of supports, whether it be for emotional support, counseling, that was all ripped away. Mm -hmm. And that is one thing I think we're going to see the repercussions of. A lot, we're talking more about mental health, but what are we really 
doing and providing? Well, and that's a question that I, I have for you is like, I think because mental health maybe hasn't been on the forefront of every conversation and especially the mental health of children and youth um, from a medical perspective and, you know, from your point of expertise, what are some of the long-term consequences? Like what happens when we do not offer children and youth mental health supports? Yeah. So most mental health concerns start in child and adolescence and ones, if they're not dealt with, it progresses into mental health concerns in adults and longer term. So if you have a kid that's got anxiety or a kid that's had some type of traumatic event or is growing up maybe in a community where there's violence, if that's not addressed, eventually, you know, it, and it's not just mental health things that happen later on in life too. It, I'm, we look at physical health, developing cancer, anything where there's that underlying stress. So their bodies are stressed right? Which makes their mind stress. There's something called toxic stress, which is like a constant state of sort of flight or fight almost where you feel that and hypervigilant where you're just going to react. That increases your blood pressure. It wreaks havoc on your cardiovascular system. It increases the chances for developing cancer, diabetes, all of these different things. So not only do we have mental health conditions, we've got physical health conditions later on in life. Maybe that's also things like Poverty, lack of education, not being as successful as you could be. I mean, it could be problems with the law, you name it. So it's such an important piece and it really does get left by the wayside a lot of times. Yeah, I think people have a hard time. Some people may have a hard time conceptualizing that like this actually costs more money. You cut this funding now, it is going to cost an exponential amount more in crisis management, police services, healthcare yeah. system pressures. So. Not, not to mention like the, the toll that it's having on, on these youth and, and people who need these, these um, supports. It's, it's unreal. Like that's the important thing is, is like, you know, <laughs> money is, is, you know, I, I try to translate it to where, like to art in itself. Yeah. If there were no financial barriers in art, imagine the art we could have. Yes. Imagine the musicals that we could procure. Imagine, imagine the music that we could have recorded if, if, if financials weren't a problem. Now imagine how good we could do in humanity if financials weren't the issue. If like, why are we, I hate that we battle over these things. I know it's horrible. Because people are suffering. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it too, am I going to come in and say, okay, you bunch of like 12 to 19 year olds, this is what you need to fix your mental health. And this is what's going to help you. So I did work with a bunch of youth and we looked at at risk for sexual exploitation. I wasn't going to come in there and tell them what was going on in their lives. They're the ones that need to give me that information. And then we can help create programming, maybe peer support, different types of things that can help in the community rather than being prescriptive. Cause I don't have the magical answers for that. I think they all do. So, I, you 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 touched on sexual exploitation of the, yeah. the people the the people that you're working with right now. Um, so another methodology that you've been using is something called participatory action. Yes. Um, do you want to? Can you t explain what that is and tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So again, it's another qualitative method, and what you're doing is working in the in the community um, with a group of individuals. And the real goal for participatory action is to seek some sort of um, political change or systemic change. That was what we were trying to do. And I mean, it does sometimes come down to money too. If I had, I mean, we're always applying for money and trying to find money for funding and mm -hmm. supports. But with this one, it was trying to find out from the youth, what is going on for them? Why is there a risk for you guys in regards to, and sexual exploitation, not only necessarily as commercial sexual exploitation, but using their bodies for currency in any way. So I need a place to crash. I need something to eat. Uh, I need new clothes, whatever, those types of pieces. And what can we learn from the youth? So working alongside them to create some type of, an, a, prog of a program or an idea that would build upon that. So again, it's you're spending a lot of time with, this was a group of uh, female youth that I worked with that they identified as female. And we spent a lot of time together hearing again, sort of what's gone on in their lives, what risk for sexual exploitation looked like for them? What have their experiences like being like in school with their families, all of these different types of pieces, and then trying to put together all of what can make a change. 
Is there a type of program? What would have been helpful for you? And most of them say things like peer support, working by the time we were done with it, working with maybe younger individuals to help them make better choices, finding out what resources are available in the community. And this was just before COVID. And unfortunately, that sort of, again, is another thing that ripped away a place for all these kids to be able to go after school or if, you know, if they weren't in school, that's it was some, gone. That's something that I never thought about was youth programs and drop-in programs that that may have been affected by that. That's that's huge. Yeah, and I mean, if you think about these kids, this particular agency isn't a very... Um, an area where there's a bit more poverty in Edmonton, a lot of newcomers. And those programs, the kids would go there right after school, ages 5 to eight, 17, 18, they would have food. They would have dinner there. They would do homework there. They would hang out there. They would have sports. They would do all crafts, whatever you name it. That was gone because a lot of them didn't have a safe place to be. Mm-hmm. I grew so, up. Yeah. I was just going to say I grew up um, in uh, in a small town in Alberta and uh, it was like four doors down in the middle of my childhood. Um, they had decided to... Um, turn a house into uh, a youth drop-in center. They called it uh, youth headquarters. Okay. And it was uh, such a great place for, for myself even to, to go and spend time when I couldn't be at home or when I didn't want to be at home or uh-huh. things like that. And I, when, when I didn't have access to those places for certain reasons, um, I kind of defaulted back and went, you know, where can I go that, that I can be me and myself? And I ended up um, taking solace in movies And I would sneak into movies and I would um, take, I would ask, you know, if I didn't have money for a movie, I'd like, this was back in the time where there was lines, constantly lines of getting into movies. So I I would like go stand in line um, at a movie theater and just like wait for for a couple to come by and be like, I really want to go see this movie. Like, can I come in with you guys? Like, it's, It's like an 18 plus movie, but I can't go or like, and there would be so many people that were just like so kind and so nice that would just like, yeah, sure. Like, come on. You, in. Yeah, yeah. Come on in. You're, it's like, uh, they're my, my brother and sister and something like that. So Aww. finding, uh, it, I hope that other youth have, um, the option to do, I mean, I was sneaking into movies and doing things that I probably shouldn't have been doing at that point in my life, but I'm really hoping that youth have something that is approachable like that and and people that can support them, even if it's not like when they'd have nowhere to go like I did. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it comes from all walks of life. Like we, I do, I've done a lot of work with people and youth experiencing, we say social vulnerability now. Um, but also I mean, just the youth mental health services for so many people are are needed across the board from from everything, from um, anxiety. You think of youth with um, substance use issues. Yeah, the very few and far between. The amount of uh, trained therapists, child psycho- psychiatrists, that type of piece also is you know hard to come by we're making an effort, but what can we do differently and how can we involve the people that are actually living those circumstances to make a difference? So let them lead sometimes and really have their voices in there. And that's a lot of the piece that I like to put forward is having the voice of the people that this is impacting and that reaches more people to me than, I mean, we do need our quantitative research where we have those numbers, but when you're trying to really have that relational piece and make it hit home, that's where I like to go. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Y'all ever heard of carrot cake fudge? Well, you have now. Using fresh locally grown carrots, sometimes from her own backyard, Jean Persky's carrot cake fudge is just one of the many that she handcrafts in small batches in Sherwood Park. With over 40 years of experience making this classic confection, Jean uses fresh local fruits and vegetables, and her fudge never contains any preservatives. Visit the Confetti Sweets retail store in Sherwood Park or swing by and scoop some up from the Griffins Landing convenience store at McEwen University. And we are back. 
So Margot, um, I do want to talk a little bit about your work with youth at risk for sexual exploitation. And I'm just curious how you came to study that and what the experience was like, because it's got to be tough. So to be honest, like how that came about was the director of the agency of the youth agency came. I was with at the U of A at that time and came and said, we are seeing so many girls. We even had a 12 year old who was diagnosed with three different STIs. What is going on here? We don't know what to do and we can't get support and help and treatment and services for these kids. We need help. So we need to understand what's going on in these girls. This time it was the, the female youth, what's going on in their world. And this does happen for males as well. This was primarily directed at females is where we started. You have to sort of start somewhere and that's where it was. So it came from there. So it was an invitation from the community who identified it. And that's also important too, that the community is identifying an issue because me going in as a researcher and saying, I think this is an issue for you, may, may not be an issue for them at all. This was a huge, this was a big one. So this is where we started with that and then tried to figure out, okay, how do we go about helping out? Yeah. And, and like, what about harm reduction? Because a part of your body of research is harm reduction. So what role does harm reduction play in scenarios like this? Because you can't just tell kids, don't be exploited, don't have sex, yeah. don't do whatever. But I mean, most people would be like, you're going to give a 12 year old condoms. So yeah. What are the, what are the options? Yeah. Yeah. What are the options and like, how do you fit harm reduction into work like this? And I don't know if you've talked about harm reduction in other. No, actually maybe all. let's introduce everyone to harm reduction in the context of uh, your work and the benefits of, of harm, harm reduction versus telling people don't do that. Yeah. I think the, one of the most popular things that you hear about harm reduction or some of the big examples. One is, is condom use. So people are, don't go into schools and give kids condom and tell them, you know, tell them about sex because that's going to make them want to do it. No, that's wrong. Actually, that is not. So you want to mitigate the risks as much as you possibly can. The other harm reduction thing we hear a lot about is a needle exchange types of programs, um, heroin replacement programs, um, the safe injection sites, mm -hmm. which a lot of the money was pulled for those. So I'm a firm, solid believer because the research has supported that harm reduction approaches work. Even things really so simple is like um, the mothers against drunk drivers. So like having a designated driver, this is a harm reduction approach, yep. right? People are going to drink. So we want to keep people safe. How do we do that? So this is the same. I, I'm a firm believer in that. So that's, all the, the research that I go supports that. I'm not going to tell kids not to drink. I'm not going to tell kids you can't do drugs. You can't do all these different things. It's going to just, you know, how are we going to make that your life um, is the fullest and richest that it possibly can be and just simplify it without having all the harms that may occur to you? How can you be safe? It's so interesting. I used to own a business uh, in my hometown um, and you know, when you own a business, most of the time you're working with other businesses and you, you have this community of commerce, uh, in your town. And, uh, we had, uh, a business association for the downtown core and they were, this is when harm reduction sites and safe consumption sites were being introduced. And you would not believe the amount of businesses that voted against all these things. Yeah. And they're, they're saying, oh, you know, we, we hate seeing all this stuff downtown. We we can't we can't be bothered with unhoused people. We don't let them use our bathrooms. And I was just so <laughs> I got into so many heated arguments because I mean I saw it. I grew up in this this town, and I I lived in it. I I know all of these. There's a lot of very familiar faces in the unhoused community that mm. you just you oh oh that's Tony. <laughs> and you probably know what a bit of their background may be, like how they ended up. I mean, a lot of people that are end up on the you know on the streets, homeless, unhoused. There's mental health yep. condition, and from like a variety of things. There was there's so there was so many unhoused people. There was they would come in and use our bathrooms all the time, yeah. and it's just like they take they actually took great care of our bathroom. Like there was a lot of people that would complain, oh they mess up our bathrooms. It's like if you treat them with respect, they'll treat you with respect. Um, and there's a lot of times where actually one specific uh, gentleman come into came into my restaurant once, and he's like, do you have any hot water? And I was like, hot water. I mean, 
actually, no, I don't. I, I can boil you some. What's it for? And he's like, oh, I just want to put some hot water in my cup of noodles. Aww. And I was like, do you want like chicken? And like, because we, we were like a barbecue restaurant um, yeah. that, that I ran. And I was just like, you, you want some chicken to go in that? And he's like, well, I don't have any money. And I was like, I'll just give you some, man. Like add it to your cup of noodles. That should be pretty good. He was really stoked. Um, well, the harm reduction, there's a lot of research now on harm reduction and it's proved to work. Mm-hmm. And But I mean, that was the same thing that it, it happened in Edmonton. It happened in Vancouver when they opened Insight. All, a lot of the businesses are, no, we don't want that here. We don't want that here. Same thing with Housing First in Edmonton, which is a program I don't know if you're familiar with. And that is providing housing to individuals who aren't housed. So rather than saying, get a job, get some money. Yeah. Get clean. <laughs> don't use anything. And then we'll give you a place to live. Say, you know what? We're going to give you a place to live so that you can actually get a job. You yeah. have an address. You have a place to sleep at night and you can get clean. And these have proven to work. I live not far from McEwen in the Westmount area. And I should have brought the letter in, but I came out one morning and there was this long letter in my mailbox all about the horrible um, housing first program and that they're wanting to build a housing first building in the neighborhood and how that's going to destroy the neighborhood. This happened in Twilliger town a long time ago yeah. too, where you're going to have people that there's going to be needles in the playground and blah, 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 all of these different things. And I was freaking horrified. I'm yeah. like, are you kidding me? There's somebody in my community doesn't understand that, these things make a change and make a difference just because you hide it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. You're, you actually started, um, your career working as a community nurse in Woodcroft. Yeah. Yeah. I just bought yeah. a house there like two oh, years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. That was where I sort of started out and I worked in all the, in the schools and it's a yeah. great little community. Yeah. Um, so you said that this project kind of got caught up, um, in COVID. A little bit. Well, we we sort of came to the end of the project and really would need to to build on it. And COVID came and things sort of had taken over and the youth also got older. Mm -hmm. But I think what we've learned from that is, again, to take the information from the kids themselves and move that over so that they can take control of their situations and pass on information and mentor and so forth, rather than coming in and saying, here's my binder of magical programs for you to do. And obviously everything will be just cured. No, it's not. Yeah. It, it ain't going to work that way. Yeah. Do you have any plans to continue this research or to follow up on it with a new project? Yeah. So right now, I mean, a lot, and you must talk to other researchers that a lot of time you spend writing funding um, applications for funding. Um, I had just put in a big one recently and it's not on that, but it was looking at waiting and waiting time. So what happens to children, youth and their families while they're waiting for services? And I think from from that is what I'm interested in right now. And that got example that sort of got amplified again by COVID too, because that added to the the issues. I am looking at going back. Uh, I need to touch base again with the agency and see where they're at and what's happened there. And because the past few years have just all the community research we weren't allowed to touch anymore. That was sort of, that was pulled. So uh, I think it would be interesting to research the effect that kind of putting a stop to community-based research in the city has on communities. Because like you said, especially if you're um, using methodology that is solutions-based and actually creating policy to not be able to look at how has the world changed in the last two years? And like, we're missing stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think we think from our own perspective, I mean, I've got a pretty, if you like, I don't know if it's a boring life, but I mean, I don't have some of the issues that some of the youth have had and, or the children or the families. And we, everybody struggled. Everybody struggled with being isolated and not, you know, Luckily, I didn't have financial ones necessarily, but can you imagine? Or you'd have to work all the time. Just a disaster. I mean, I work in the music and live entertainment industry, so it was just collapsed. Yeah. 
and I can't, uh, the, they must be just terrifying. Yeah. That whole feeling. It's cool. really interesting. Like it was really great to be able to have some uh, assistance during this, that time. Yeah. But I really, like, I, I couldn't, yeah, sir, yeah. CERB, CRB. Um, I couldn't imagine somebody who didn't have on paper an income to be able to access that funding. Yeah, because if you needed $5,000... $5,000 yeah. on paper for, for the government to consider you for that. And, I mean, I understand, but I also think that a universal basic income, if we want to go that direction route, would, um, you know, solve a lot of issues. It's sort of coming at it from the housing first sort of yeah, exactly. way to think about it. You can't... I mean, I worked... I, I don't think it was in any of the information, but... A long, t- a long, quite a long time ago, the Milner Library downtown, they actually have social workers that work in the libraries and they do a lot of work. And we did a focus group with a bunch of youth that were homeless. And they were just saying, they, I, I remember this one youth saying to me, it's easier for me to walk out of this building and score drugs than it is for me to find a job. And these are the things that are so true. And if you don't have an address or you don't have a phone or you don't have supports or you don't have clothes to wear that are appropriate or you you just don't have like that safety net or people that love you or care about you. How do you go about making those changes? You would just keep on going with what's making you cope with the day. Yeah. So there was a, there was a, a movement in Calgary um, that was that got started by a registry company, and a friend of mine had kind of spearheaded this. This um, it, they're not a charity because they're a registry, but they started a, a donation program because they were noticing from their registry uh, so many unhoused people or people without addresses, people without any any social records coming in and saying, "Hey, I got to get a job, but I don't have an ID. Yeah. I, I I don't have the documents that people require for these sort of things." And then the registry has to be like, yeah, it's like 50 bucks or like whatever the price is. And they're like, I don't have any money. Like I'm trying to get a job or, you know. Um, so they they decided to start taking donations and a GoFundMe a c- campaign every single year. And they would put that money towards people who would didn't have any money that needed these registry services. And this is the thing. we say, Oh, you know what? You just pull up your socks, get a job, do all these things. Sometimes you can't. There's a lot of barriers in the way. Uh, huge barriers and those are systemic barriers. Yeah. So I kind of actually want to go back um, to the library. Yeah. Uh, when you said that youth saying it's easier for me to go out and do this than do that. So based off of, you know, your body of research and everything you've kind of learned from these methodologies and working with youth, what are some of the major, major things um, I guess kind of calls to action to society? Like, what are the biggest things you have noticed or you have heard youth say they need to be successful or to feel supported? It's a huge question. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest issues are really to come from a safe space and to feel not judged is big ones. And I mean, there's so, there's so many different layers encompassed in that question and what go on for youth because you've got youth that have addiction issues. You may have youth that have experienced trauma. You may have youth that have anxiety. I mean, there's so many different things. The biggest things are coming where you have a support network that works with you rather than against you. And the barriers that come up all the time are the big thing. So how can we set people up for success? And I don't think we always do that. Mm-hmm. We are, you know, you have to wait for this service. You need to get this before you get that. Um, but that's why I'm looking at the waiting times right now, because what are the waiting times for different services? Um, so I think those are the big keys and it may sound really basic and really boring no but having somebody that's advocating for you and helping you navigate all of those different pieces and then feeling the self-esteem and the worthiness and that's what I mean I teach mental health uh primarily classes in mental health I'm teaching the human sexuality this semester which has been interesting I have a few friends in that class they speak very highly oh Oh my god it's like being hilarious anyway it's very fun. But you end up talking about social determinants of health in that class too, right? Because we talk about um, stigma, sexual exploitation. We talk about commercialization of sex. We talk about all sorts of different things as well. 
I'm getting off track. I don't remember. No, no, no. But it all sort of interplays, right? You need to be able to have a relationship with somebody. You need to be able to know their story, their experiences, have them feel that they're worthy and good enough in order to make a change in their lives, just like everybody. So why is a, you know, a youth that may be homeless or has had a really shitty upbringing or has maybe been involved with children's services or what, why should that be any different? Like, why should they have, why should they be exempt from that? So providing all of those supports. So where can you do that? And I think that comes into from the community Mm -hmm. and from peers, people that have maybe gone through that lived experience. There's just so many things that can be done. Yeah. But it's over it is overwhelming and the more you're in it, the more overwhelming it can become. I actually have kind of a follow-up question because it is overwhelming and it's big and it's a lot of things and I think social determinants of health is part of like a bigger picture of health physical health is impacted by everything. It's impacted by the economy, it's impacted yeah. by the weather, it's impacted by like literally everything in the world. Um I want to know, do you, as someone who has worked um, with these kinds of research, like methods that are so grounded in relationship building, um, do you have any advice for researchers who are looking to work within these methodologies or who are just starting in participatory research? I, my biggest thing, and I have students that do work in those methods, not I, I re- I've recently come to McEwen actually in July, so I haven't been here that long. Um, so I have had experience working with uh, PhD and doctoral students and honors students as well that have taken on these types of methodologies. And what I tell them is you, you need to be patient at first because at first people feel like I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything. I feel like I need to be doing something. I'm like, just by being there and being present, you're doing something. It just feels like you're not right? Because you're like, should I be gathering data, gathering data? But you're establishing that relationship piece. And once you get that trust, the whole world opens up to you. And this is what I tell students in the mental health course, but also in the human sexuality course, it does come down to the relational piece. You have to be genuine about it. Yeah. You, you can't go in expecting to for someone to open up to you and just like, you know, have an ulterior motive of why you want them to open up to you. Yeah. And how are you going to learn from somebody if they don't trust you? And then how do you get that information and then make a change in the world? I mean, it's, it's, it can be daunting. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest takeaways are the be patient. It's a relationship. You're not going to know everything. And I think that's a lot of time what students or researchers go in, feel like I need to know everything. I need to be completely repaired. Sometimes you're just not prepared and things just really don't roll out like, yeah, like you, I mean, you want them to every conversation I've ever had. Yeah, <laughs> like, like uh. yeah, like they just really don't. Mm-hmm. Is it different with youth then? Like because this kind of research, I find it hard to talk to youth. I'm terrified of teenagers. I, <laughs> I'm so scared they're going to be mean to me. Um, <laughs> they're going to team up they on probably bully you. Are going to be mean? To yeah. You. No, so is it is it different? Like, are there any? extra considerations that need to be taken into consideration when you are going to work with youth and build a relationship with honest it's just honesty right and I mean it's horrible because like the older you get the less cool you get and I'm like I think I don't know (laughs) anything about anything anymore maybe but I think it's just being honest and being open and you learn a lot right like if I went now and spent I probably now that everything's opened up spending time in the community and back you'll learn a lot, right? So just being open to it and being honest and not pretending that you know the answers. That's, I think, the biggest part of it. Yeah, they can, can, you can you'll feel scared. Even just like communication barriers, like between, say, an 11 or 12-year-old and a researcher who might be maybe using like academic language or asking about yeah. concepts or things that a kid might not understand. We like, deal with that a lot in music and teaching music lessons is, you know... I am very close to getting my bachelor's degree in music and trying to translate the knowledge that I've gained here to somebody who's just starting out on their instrument on the, I'm a drummer. So start trying, trying to teach advanced techniques to, to that person isn't going to work. So you have to start, um, at least music wise, you have to try to relate to where they're at Yes, and, and kind of build off of what they can do and show them, 
perhaps what what's capable what they're capable of um in a different different way it's really back to relationships right i mean it's just understanding where somebody is that's exactly what it is i think sometimes when you're looking at healthcare and working with children and youth you do have to remember those and it maybe if you've taken psychology those horrible things to remember about developmental stages but knowing what to expect yeah. like what's you know what can a 12 year old talk to you about how to approach them what might work with them versus somebody who's 18 versus somebody who's 29 right i really like that um i'm i might uh cut my part that i'm about to say out but i want to say that uh, we might do it as a plug i don't know but the sarah mclaughlin school for music ah. uh, has just opened up in edmonton really and they are um uh and i believe they're a not-for-profit that is uh dedicated to music lessons for um vulnerable youth holy shit we need to talk yes. so is that because there's the nina haggerty too which is I, it's not music though they do arts are you familiar with that place on one eighteenth? only Ave? familiar uh with with that gallery yeah okay yeah because they do also programming some program for youth i believe but, and actually above there is artist housing subsidized artist housing oh interesting oh so that is really cool so yeah. that would so places like that for example would be something that i would be like okay margo you need to talk to who's ever functioning and working there and then being around, that's where you can do things that are research projects that actually give back to the community. And if you can take the stories and the experiences and then me show like the amazing things that the kids can do there and bring that to places where you can earn funding or maybe build programming or what did they use? How was their mental health impacted by actually being able to do the music that they wanted to do away maybe from families where it was stressful? I mean, everybody, I have two teenagers at home. Sorry, guys. But like, holy shit, <laughs> like that's super fun, right? During a pandemic. So I got off tropic. I shouldn't diss them. But that, you're not dissing oh, them. Okay. We're all, we they, all know what teenagers yeah, are like. So <laughs> that's the, I was a that, teenager once, believe it or not. <laughs> I, I believe it. So that's what I'm talking about. So that's where those ideas percolate. And maybe I'm not so great at communicating it, but it just sort of evolves and it make, can make such a difference. Huge difference. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Dylan. We'll keep See? it in. Yeah, now we'll keep I need it in. to like I need to <laughs> hook up with somebody that is at the Tara McLaughlin School. That's really I thought just Vancouver they had No, they just opened the one in Edmonton. I apl I was going to apply for one of the drum positions, drum and percussion positions, but I'm just so darn darn, darn busy. Uh, I hate saying I'm busy because it makes people not call me. They think I'm too busy. But uh I was a little overwhelmed with university at that moment, moment in yeah, time. Yeah, that makes so I sense. Figured I couldn't take on another. Well, maybe someone job. from the center will be listening. There you go. Please reach or out I to Margo Jackson. Yeah, so or I need, she'll or, call you. Yeah, I need to figure that. But those are the types of community relationships that are really, really important. And it may, you know, people think, oh, inner city. Okay, you need to go like because we're so close to like the Herb Jameson and yeah. the George Spady and the 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 Boyle Street and Bissell. There are other places as well where particularly more youth go. But, I mean, youth can go up to the age of 25, right? Well, yeah, I heard your yeah. brain is not done developing. Yeah, you're not until you're... you ain't done yet. So. Yes, my mid-20s are a testament to that. Yeah, <laughs> everything's still, the frontal lobe is still <laughs> misfired. <Soft>. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps what we'll do is we'll maybe throw a, a link to the Sarah McLaughlin School of Music uh, website. Yeah, if people want to uh, check it out. Um, and... Definitely any services like Yes and things like that we yeah. can link to. In the I Human is another big one and they have a huge music. I don't know if you've ever been in there. They had help with the new building that they're in and they have an enormous music program there. Amazing. And you used to be able to go on their website and access a lot of the youth's recordings which was really cool to hear some of the stuff. So they, and they do a lot of they do a lot of arts-based interventions. So they've got uh, fashion design, painting, mm -hmm. you name it. So that's awesome. Yeah. Well, that's kind of all the questions that we had for you. But before we let you go, um, we just want to open up the floor. Like, did we not talk about something that's really important? Do you have any words of wisdom for researchers out there looking Alls to follow to in your footsteps? Oh my God, the words of wisdom. Yeeks. <laughs> I think the biggest <laughs> thing is to not. A lot of people don't understand qualitative work or narrative work and to not shy or scare away from it because it does so much add to the richness of that human 
understanding and that human experience. And I think that's such a vital piece that needs to be had. The other part is that not being an expert. And I say this to my students all the time. And I feel like that all the time is I'm not an expert. Like when people, you're an expert and blah, blah, blah. I just start laughing because it just seems so ridiculous. But you know what? Just to be open up to the end, to understanding, to have people share with you. And I think the decreasing of the stigma in mental health. And I think we're getting there a little bit more than we used to be. Maybe a little bit more. Yeah. People are less afraid to yeah. talk about depression and anxiety, anxiety. But like, what about other? Th- what about eating disorders? Oh, like that's one of the don't big things. even get me started. Every right time now. I'm watching a movie or a show, and they make like a joke about something, or a woman is eating a salad or putting sweetener in their coffee, and I'm like rude. So I right now TikTok and freaking teens is driving me nuts. So and this is like not just from a we often think eating disorders, females. I mean, it's something that actually I really want to look at now for a research perspective. So males and the misinformation that's on TikTok and a lot of, and I've learned this from my kids, right? Talking about calorie deficit and all this, what kind I of sh- eat all this shit. like, holy shit, what is going on? I don't know. But now I sound like a hundred years old. What's going on with, but with the social media, but those are, and we still have, but that's the thing. Like people are like, I have anxiety and I'm like, great. We can talk about how we're all perpetually terrified and depression and knowing that yeah. like, it's not a fault. You're not lazy. You're not but unmotivated, I, but yeah, there's so many other mental health issues yes. that are, we're still got to get there. ADHD is something too, that I think we need to talk a little bit more about mm-hmm. too. ADHD in girls is another one. I still hear such negative terms thrown out there, like the schizophrenic person, these types of things. Um, do we talk about bipolar that much? No, not necessarily. But again, to steer away from the labeling and yeah. you know that we all have mental health, just like we all have physical health. And it doesn't have to be this diagnostic type of piece that we can address mental health and wellness from different ways and to understand that. And I think that's the biggest part that would be the takeaway is how can we Again, decreasing the stigma, talk more about it, know that we all have it um, and the things that impact it particularly. I mean, the one thing that we didn't talk about was something called adverse childhood experiences, which I think I don't know if I put. So looking at early childhood, looking at parenting, what are the experiences that a kid's gone through when they're small and how does that impact them later on in life? So making sure that we're supporting communities, supporting families, providing all of these services so that we can avoid issues later on. You know, it's so interesting that that you kind of brought up that topic. I'm, t- I'm currently in a, a class that is called Psychoacoustics, okay. and it's about the brain development of humans and how, how we interpret sounds and, and how our brains were developed as children to, to really understand, you know, um, one, one, one example is like, uh, sounds that come from in front of you and slightly above you are always deemed more important because as children, where our parents ah. talking to us from are above us. Yeah. And like, we're like, oh, that's important. So, you know, in, in audio engineering, it's like, okay, if you want something important, you put it in the mix there. That's pretty so cool. So like the speakers are always like on the... <laughs> well, the, I, there's mixing techniques that you can elevate and lower things in a stereo plane. It's uh, in other others things but that's yes. not the important part the neuro- <laughs> okay. neuroscience is the important part and the brain development and it says oh you should make your your babies listen to mozart and all of these these super um yeah you know idealistic ways to raise your children and it's just like the reality is n- nobody's raised this way the reality is you need to be able to be a healthy parent to respond to your baby when they cry you mm-hmm. pick them up and you cuddle them when you need to and the brain development part, I think people are always shocked that that starts in the damage can be done from infancy to year one. That's the most important period of time. Exactly. And to be able to what you need to do, it's that whole attachment thing and respond to babies, provide them support, all of those different pieces. But sometimes we need to do that because we need to provide the parents for support and then teen pregnancy. Like, I mean, it's a whole yeah. thing, but it's fa- it's a fascinating area. Yeah as well as like epigenetics. And I don't know if you touched on that, but how we haven't talked no. about it yet, but I'm oh. hoping that we can actually spend like a whole episode because it blew my mind, like epigenetics and neuroplasticity. Can you explain oh. to me? Sorry. Uh, I don't know what any oh, of those words. I mean. am not 
I am not an expert in epigenetics, but I guess the simplest way to say what epigenetics is, is that the environment impacts your brain development, even in utero. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what people freak out. So yeah, we did touch on that a little bit, but we, we mostly talked about sounds, not necessarily, you know, the sound of, of voices yeah. played a huge part. So they did, they've done tests on children and early infants of to see if they recognize their parents' timbre of voice. Okay. So that what they'll do is they'll take a recording of their, their mother speaking, but when you're in the womb, everything sounds muffled. Yes. So what they do is they muffle the, the audio sample. And so they'll play their, their mother or their mother's language. It uh, might be like a female, but not their mother in a different, in the same, same language that they speak, um, muffled over here. And then they play a different language that has a different pentameter over here, same muffled. And they see which one raises the baby's heart rate or like engages the, the brain, the, the baby's brain. Interesting. And it's the, the, obviously the one that they're more comfortable with keeps them easy. They're resting easy, but the other one actually like elevates their stress levels. And so if you can imagine, so with epigenetics, if the mom is stressed and her cortisol levels rise, that stress impacts the development of the baby in utero and the environment is so important. And I think this has really freaked people out when they start realizing, oh my God, brain development starts even before poof, they are born. Right. I think that understanding it more and the reason I, I'm interested in having actually a, a very in-depth conversation with someone who is able to to come at I it. I could try and find somebody for you. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> please let them know. Okay. But um, that epigenetics are kind of were very helpful to me in starting to understand generational trauma yeah. from a perspective that is not only um, like cultural, but physical, like physical yes. things that happen when groups of people experience adverse physical conditions, the pregnancy, the uterus prepares itself for a world that is not the same. And it leads to a host of physical men like health problems. Absolutely. So it's very, very interesting. And I think we could definitely dedicate a whole episode to it. However, but not today, not today. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to, I don't, think so necessarily we touched on a lot of stuff and it's all all pretty amazing um i can't believe that i was able to transfer my knowledge from my psychoacoustics class i was really trying to figure out where i was going to connect if i have learned anything about doing this podcast is that dylan can make anything (laughs) about music (laughs) but it makes so much sense right because maybe when mom is talking if she's in a relaxed state the hormones and the whole Mm -hmm. environment of the womb. I mean, there's a lot and that's sort of calming for baby. It's very interesting. I mean, there's still a lot of research probably to be done on that. And I certainly am not an expert in psychoacoustics, but it makes sense. I actually, uh, and this is a tangent for a tangent. Oh God. I have heard music on YouTube designed to make your cat feel more comfortable and the music is allegedly scientifically designed to mimic the rhythm of a mom cat's purring muted as if the kitten was in utero listening to the mother purr. So did you try this with your cat? I sure did. And he was mildly interested. And I was like, science! <laughs> how, science. Do you, how do you measure mildly interested? You know, he came over and he oh, was like, okay. what's going on? So oh, okay. I was, I just thought that was, uh, if you look at YouTube, uh, cat music, music for your cat, but it's got like all nice. sorts of like little bird chirps and then like purr sounds. Oh. So psycho acoustics for kittens for kittens oh Oh my god okay i have something new to look at (laughs) okay yeah that's amazing well thank you so much again for being our guest and um i'm we're really excited for this 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 podcast to air and um moving forward i think we're just going to do our outro and um but thank you so much again for being our guest this was really really a great conversation anytime we hope that we can maybe follow up uh on your newest research project once it's kind of underway or finished so Keep us posted, I will. Okay. Fantastic. 
Well, that's all we have for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you've enjoyed exploring this project with us today, you can follow up with the links in the episode description to learn a little bit more. You can support this podcast by visiting Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to catch new episodes every two weeks. Please also visit us on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services at the Faculty of Fine Art and Communications at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing are by Dylan Cave, with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Executive producers are Jason Malenko and Ray Burry. 